KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, February is Black History Month, and one of my favorite works of black history is Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a history of the great migration of six million black people away from the South in the 20th century. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award and half a dozen other prizes. We'll speak with the author, Isabel Wilkerson, later in the hour. Also coming up, Pramila Jayapal, head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, will talk about how she got into politics, starting out as an immigrant from India, and about the lessons she's learned. Her book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. First up, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with the bad news. A Democratic senator had a stroke on Monday, Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico. He's only 49. They say he will make a full recovery. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what? In the meantime, that takes the Democrats down to 49, uh, while the Republicans are still at 50. Although for a week at least, uh, Mitt Romney is out with uh, with COVID. Uh, uh, but it is a, uh, a terribly inconvenient situation for the Democrats. Uh, I mean, I suppose if uh, Mitch McConnell wanted to, he could try to uh, claim the majority uh, in the Senate. Uh, I should add that if Lujan doesn't make it, uh, he, his replacement would be appointed by the rather progressive Democrat who is the governor of New Mexico, which is the state Luhan represents in uh, in the Senate, uh, but uh, the precariousness of the Democratic uh, majority just got uh, precariouser, as it were. <laughs> well, uh, unless Biden can get his nominee to the Supreme Court uh, uh, in front of the Senate um, before Mitt Romney comes back from his COVID uh, infection. Um, it's going to be a while before we see a Supreme Court uh, con- confirmation hearing, it, it, it looks like. but Possibly. Uh, I, I should point out that, uh, you know, the uh, very peculiar uh, Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, has uh, in all her years in the Senate never voted against a presidential nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think there's a reasonable chance that she'll vote for whoever uh, Biden nominates and a somewhat reasonable chance that uh, uh, Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski might vote for that Democrat as well. So, you know, are- I, I noticed I, I noticed that Lindsey Graham voted to confirm the front runner, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, for the U.S. Court of Appeals. He joined Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Three Republicans made it 53 for Ketanji Brown Jackson for the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, these are the mysteries of American politics. Well, Lindsey Graham raises an interesting question, which is to say he's, uh, uh, you know, suggested he might be inclined towards the most conservative Democrat whose name is being bandied about, uh, that of Judge Childs of South Carolina, who was clearly the protege of Jim Clyburn. Uh, Now, The Prospect has done two stories, both by Alex Salmon 
on Childs, one of which uh, shows that she has been a, a kind of law and order, and that's law and order with an N apostrophe mm-hmm. between law and order uh, uh, judge on the bench, and also that in private practice, she represented employers against workers numerous times. She's clearly not the most progressive uh, uh, possibility uh, that Biden has before him. But he is being certainly leaned on by Jim Clyburn, uh, who got him out of uh, his primary season slump in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, it's a game Republicans can play. They can, there was a peculiar op-ed in Tuesday's Wall Street Journal uh, that was basically pro-child. And I think that creates a possibility that they're trying to do several things. They're leaning on Biden to appoint the more conservative uh, nominee and that that leaning becomes inadvertently more uh, intense with, as we've noted, uh, the absence of Lujan from, from the Senate. Uh, and they're also giving themselves kind of an out. Uh, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they've cited two reasons, Republicans in aggregate have cited two reasons why they don't like Biden's picks. First, they, they claim that uh, it's uh, simply unjust affirmative action to limit his choices, as he has said, to black women. Uh, but then if they support childs, uh, and the nomination st- still goes to Jackson, uh, who is still a front runner by all accounts and is a distinctly more progressive. They can say, well, you know, we're only opposing Jackson because she's progressive, not because she's she's a black woman. But since they also a lot of them are still maintaining that he shouldn't have limited the field to black women, uh, then they can even come in against Childs if if he goes for Childs. So it is kind of a Republican backup strategy uh, that they can yes, employ. It's wonderful. Um, let's stick with just for a minute with the Republican argument that Biden is making an affirmative action uh, pick. You you uh, you remind us some history of the Republicans and affirmative action picks. Yeah, well, there's actually w- one Republican, the senior most Republican in the Senate, who was in the Senate when Reagan nominated uh, Sandra Day O'Connor for the court in 1981. Now, in the fall of 1980, when Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter, uh, and he was, uh, the poll showed while he had a lead among male voters, he was trailing Carter among female voters. He held a press conference loudly proclaiming that he would uh, nominate the first woman ever to sit on Supreme Court if he became president. Uh, and and that's, that's what he did. And uh, the, uh, there was a freshman member of the Senate Judiciary Committee who uh, voted for Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, uh, named Chuck Grassley, mm. who is now the senior member of uh, the, the Republican group on the Judiciary Committee, and didn't say a word about Reagan limiting the field or affirmative action or any complaints about that when the uh, nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor came before him. So he's not really in a great position, even though he is the ranking Republican on judiciary to uh, complain that uh, Biden is is using affirmative action. I should add that Sandra Day O'Connor 
her nomination was approved by a vote of 99 to nothing. Um, I should also add that uh, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in, uh, in 2020, uh, Donald Trump said he would appoint a woman to replace her. So there's a lot of precedent uh, for Republicans singling out a particular group uh, you know, and, and doing exactly what Republicans are complaining that um, Biden has done, uh, much like Reagan uh, during the, his campaign for presidency in, in pledging to put a black woman on the court. Could it be that what the Republicans really object to is the black woman part, not yeah, the Yeah, well, let them part. make that case. I mean, you know, geez. Uh, yes, it could be. It could well be. Could uh, be. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't think they're dumb enough to say it. But I mean, they, they you know, this this is a uh, a dog whistle that certainly goes out to, uh, you know, that percentage of their base, which is clearly white racist, which is unfortunately, I don't think a very small percentage. Yeah. So let's just talk for another minute here about Judge J. Michelle Childs, the preferred pick of South Carolina Democrat. James Clyburn in now of the Wall Street Journal and apparently some Republicans. Um, you said she's uh, represented uh, uh, corporations against workers. Uh, she's defended employers against racial and gender discrimination charges. This is all in the prospect, which has done terrific reporting on this. And well, you also I, I mentioned- and kudos to Alex Salmon, our staff writer, who's been digging this up. Alex Salmon, and he also looked at her, uh, her criminal, her, her actions as a criminal in criminal trials as a district court judge, which she did for ten years. Uh, do you want to summarize what he found there? Uh, what he found was uh, rather uh, stiff sentencing and uh, uh, an unwillingness to grant what sounded like completely reasonable defense arguments. But uh, since I don't and, have a, and her, many of her decisions were so punitive yes. that they were overturned on appeal in South Carolina. Right. Uh, and and, you know, you have to think that her her sponsor, Clyburn, just has a long relationship with her. And I'm not alleging anything salacious there, but has a long relationship with her. She's a buddy and he's just promoting her willy-nilly, uh, in, regardless of her, in, in, in many ways, quite conservative record on the bench and before she was on the bench. So <clears throat> she's, she's defended prison guards from excessive for force charges. This is, is a judge. Uh, she's rejected appeals uh, by people convicted who appealed that they had ineffective legal counsel. Um, would Cory Booker actually vote for this person, do you think? Would other progressive Democrats? Oh, I think there would be a, uh, a revolt. Uh, given the current status of the Democrats, this would have to be kind of, I think, a behind-the-scenes revolt. I mean, they don't want to be seen yeah. publicly as going against Biden. Uh, but you have to think that the Biden's inner circle of advisors, and in particular, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, who has very close ties with a lot of the progressives in the Senate and, and in the House, would be saying, look, you're going to, you know, the, 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 you're going to bring a self-inflicted headache. You know, uh, I, I, I spoke to 
some high-ranking labor union officials who will have to go unnamed about this. Uh, and, you know, this was kind of right after the first Alex Salmon piece about her record uh, representing employers against workers with legitimate grievances. Um, you know, and uh, it became clear that while they will, were not willing yet to go on the record, and for the same reason that Democratic senators are going to have to be discreet, uh, they were really not thrilled with the child's option. So let's just look for a minute at the Republicans who might vote for a highly qualified black nominee. You've said Susan Collins has never voted against any candidate. Lisa Murkowski uh, often votes for Democratic nominees. And Lindsey Graham voted to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson when she was up for the U.S. Court of Appeals, the second highest court right. in the United States. Uh, 53 is pretty good these days if he could get if if Biden could get 53. Well, I mean, 50 plus Vice President Harris is pretty good these days. But right now, it right now it's 49. Uh, and we don't know how long Senator Lujan will be out of action. Uh, but uh, I, I think under almost almost under any set of circumstances, uh, the Democrats can count on Collins, uh, which uh, would create a, uh, a 50 49 uh, majority in the absence of, uh, no, it would create a, yeah, 50 49 majority in the absence of, of Lujan. And uh, that would be sufficient. Uh, Collins was reelected just. Uh, uh, in November of 2020, so uh, she's she's safe for uh, a long time. Murkowski is up for uh, re-election this year, and already has a right-wing Republican running against her in the uh, in the primary. Now, she has run before and won election as an independent. Uh, so, I mean, if if she's looking at this, there's you know strategically. It may be a little harder to vote for a, a Democratic, a Democratic nominee. Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, uh, in in the current political climate, I think you cannot count on him. Yeah, voting for uh, a, a Democratic nominee, but uh, assuming the Democrats uh, can get Collins, and I think that is a reasonable, though not a safe, assumption. Uh, they can they can pretty much confirm uh, who, who, whoever Biden nominates. Meanwhile, Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Donald Trump spoke at a rally in Arizona where he said that if he were reelected in 2024, he would pardon the people convicted of crimes in the January 6th insurrection. How did that go over with the Republican members of Congress who had spent several hours hiding from the people attacking the Capitol who were chanting, hang Mike Pence? Well, it didn't go over great, although most Republican strategy when confronted with a Trumpism like this is simply to remain silent. Um, and it's been a busy week for Donald Trump. He's also in, in the Arizona rally and, and within the last day or two said that uh, uh, Vice President Pence could have, quote, overturned the election. Yeah. 
It's a new uh, word. He hasn't used that he's, word he hasn't before. He said overturned. Uh, no. uh, you know, the, the one man veto of uh, uh, the verdict of the uh, uh, American people. Um, and the New York Times had a story about how he was personally involved in three attempts to get some department of government to uh, impound voting machines in swing states. So it's been a it's 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 been a week of uh, I think Trump getting out there a little too much for his own good, and of course he's already being investigated by a grand jury in Atlanta for uh, uh, his uh, comment to uh, the Republican Secretary of State there uh, uh, during the contested period after the election, uh, but before the Electoral College voted in uh, uh, the, the late fall of. Uh, uh, 2020, uh, that he could find, you know, whatever it was, 11,580 votes or whatnot, uh, which would be one vote more to, again, to use Trump's word, overturn uh, uh, what Georgia voters had decided. So he uh, he is, in one sense, digging a deeper hole for himself with each passing week. Um, in another sense, we don't really know how this will play out within the Republican Party, where he's already backed a number of candidates who have signed on to his, uh, his need to say that he actually won the election and that uh, all of these other activities were just fine. And and while you are absolutely right that the Republicans would rather just keep quiet about things like this, it may well come up in primaries that the farthest right candidate will will chart will demand that the far right candidate join Trump in pledging that if reelected they would pardon the people convicted of crime so this may become the new party line of of the Trump candidates in 2022 as well as in well, the, the astonishing thing if we pull back from this uh is is that Trump's you know, neurotic phobia uh, that he can't ever lose anything or come in second for anything or ever make uh, a mistake for which any other person would apologize has become uh, not simply his own peculiar mental condition, but it's spread to uh, the Republican base. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's really almost an instance of uh, mass... I don't know what you call it, psychotic delusion, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, is now passing as party doctrine. Well, let's talk about L.A. politics for a minute. The L.A. Times keeps suggesting that developer Rick Caruso wants to run for mayor and may decide in the next few days or few weeks. So that would give us a race between a billionaire who's never been elected to anything, who, by the way, is a white man who wasn't even a Democrat a couple of weeks ago, and Karen Bass, a black woman who started out as a community organizer, then went to Congress, and then headed the Congressional Black Caucus. How would that be for a mayoral contest? And who was also Speaker of the California Assembly before she went to Congress. Well, that would be a real choice, wouldn't it? You know, I know, <laughs> you know Caruso was looking at running for mayor uh, uh, when in the election that uh, uh, Eric Garcetti first won. And at that point, before, while he was looking at it, he, he switched his registration from Republican to, uh, as they say in California, declined to state, nonpartisan. Now that he's looking for it, he's moved from declined to state to Democratic. So 
If he were not to run this time, but were to run in eight years, when there would again be an open seat for a mayor, we'd have to assume that at that point, he would declare he's a socialist. Uh, you know, he moves to the left, uh, in appearances at least, every time uh, he, he thinks about running for mayor. It's an interesting uh, uh, political progression or advertising uh, progression. But, I mean, Caruso is a little in the tradition of Richard Reardon, you know, uh, the, the rich guy who says he can fix things. In Reardon's case, uh, running as he did after the uh, 92 Rodney King uprising and uh, the, the just economic uh, uh, doldrums that Southern California had fallen into in the early 90s recession, which kind of wiped out the local aerospace industry. Um, you know, Reardon came on as, oh, I'm the guy from the private sector who builds things and can fix things. And that's, you know, now with the city dealing with, uh, you know, unaffordable housing, uh, a, a huge uh, presence of homelessness and such, Caruso can come in and, and say, look, I'm the guy who built the Grove. I'm uh, the guy who built this absurdly expensive uh, hotel in, uh, in Santa Barbara uh, and a few other things. And, you know, I can I can fix it. Now, it's very seldom that the businessman savior coming into the political arena actually can handle what uh, the, the kind of issues that arise within the political arena. Karen Bass is, you know, um, uh, bread in the bone dealing with that uh, arena. Initially, as an outsider community organizer in, in, in South LA, which, you know, was not exactly a position of power, but she was smart enough to figure out how to win some things uh, for uh, the people she represented, and and she brings that to the table. Well, actually, Rick, what Rick Caruso has indicated about the kind of campaign he would run is not just that a businessman knows how to fix things. He's he said in a recent tweet he would prioritize the safety of our families, i.e., run as a pro police anti quote crime a candidate that he would create jobs rather than chase them away. I believe he's talking about things like living wage uh, uh, demands. Right. And he said he would address homelessness with, quote, firmness that ensures that those who are following the rules are not disadvantaged by those who refuse to do so, close quote. So he's staking out some territory pretty pretty far to the right in on the LA spectrum right now. Yeah, now that was that was the Reardon strategy in 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 93 uh following as I said the the Rodney King uprising. Uh LA is a much more capital D democratic, much more liberal city than it was in 93 uh through demographic and other changes uh, uh when Reardon was elected and uh, you know Caruso will have to uh have to do some climbing uh, if, if, if he's going to make it. <clears throat> but he does have a huge fortune uh, he can put behind those words. And uh, his campaign will obviously put to a test uh, just how much uh, a kind of backlash against, uh, you know, the, uh, the ills of urban America that have intensified as a result of the pandemic, just how much of a backlash there is uh, to uh, to some of those ills. Uh, one last thing, LA Times columnist Steve Lopez pointed out that Rick Caruso is the owner of a yacht that has nine bedrooms and rents for $550,000 a week. 
wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, I mean, if he's going after the homeless, he can make the yacht available to them. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would I don't imagine you could get uh, more than nine people, one per bedroom, onto that yacht. So uh, we'll see if he uh, makes any issue, make, makes any offers in that direction. Harold Meyerson with some policy proposals for Rick Caruso. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. And if Rick Caruso wants more ideas, I'm uh, I'm available. <laughs> it's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. February is Black History Month, and one of my favorite works of black history is Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a history of the great migration of six million black people away from the South in the 20th century. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award and half a dozen other prizes. Isabel Wilkerson won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 1994 as Chicago bureau chief of the New York Times. That made her the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. She then devoted 15 years and interviewed more than 1,200 people to tell the story of the 6 million people, among them her parents, who defected from the Jim Crow South. In 2020, the book was named the number two most important work of journalism of the decade by the faculty of NYU's Journalism Institute. There had been 122 nominations. By the way, number one was Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations. Wilkerson was also awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama. I spoke with Isabel Wilkerson when the book came out in 2010. Your book is about what we call the Great Migration from the Deep South to the North and the West. I, I always wondered why the black people in L.A. mostly came from Texas and Louisiana, whereas the black people in Chicago came from Mississippi, but it turns out there's quite a simple explanation. There's a simple explanation in that there were three major streams of this great migration. It started in 1915 when World War I began and there was a great need for labor in the north, in the northern industrial cities, and they went to the cheap labor, which was in the south, and they began to recruit people, and the people were following essentially the train lines and the bus routes. There were three main routes. One was up the East Coast from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia up to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. That was one route. And there, the, 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 that was the route that my family actually followed. Uh, there was a second one, which was, as you mentioned, from Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, following the Illinois Central, primarily up north. And then the route that's less known around the rest of the country is the one from uh, Louisiana and Texas to uh, California and the rest of the West Coast as people were following the train lines uh, out here. Well, you mentioned the Illinois Central, the the IC from Mississippi, especially north of Chicago. In, in my days as a blues aficionado, I went to uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, the home of uh, Muddy Waters and other greats and Highway 61. Uh, Highway 61. And part of that pilgrimage is you go to the IC station in Clarksdale, and I, 
stood on the platform, the, the northbound platform, and, and tried to imagine what it must have been like in 1940 for young McKinley Morganfield to be standing there. I imagine you've been to some of those IC platforms, too. Well, one of the things that I really were was the goal of this book was to help bring this alive for the reader, to have the reader be able to feel what it was like to be living in the South at that time, to imagine being out in the open field, the cotton fields, uh, to be able to board those trains, as it was like to be on those trains, to see, to feel what it was like to arrive in a big city where you knew no one, uh, the sounds, the feels, the 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 the, the, the uh, sights and sounds of that. And to put the reader right inside the hearts and minds of these people who really were leaving in uh, the same way that um, people from other parts of the world have come uh, coming across the Atlantic in steerage or across the Pacific. It was really this immigrant heart that was propelling them to find another place that might be freer within the borders of their own country. So how many people rode the IC, the Illinois Central, out of the South? Well, you know, they, they came from all over. The IC was just one of the many places. I mean, there was a Silver Comet coming up the north. There's the, uh, uh, the uh, Southwest Chief. There was all many, there were many, many different trains and bus, bus routes. Many people drove and left in the middle of the night. It's hard to know how many might have been on any particular mm-hmm. line because they were going every which way they could to get out. Essentially, these were defections from the south. It's almost as if they were seeking political asylum from a caste system that had been treating them ill. So you tell the the Mississippi to Chicago story by focusing on a woman named Ida Mae Gladney. How did you find Ida Mae Gladney and and, and the other people you wrote about? Well, that's where the 1,200 people that I I mentioned come (laughs) in. Essentially, I did kind of a casting call, a kind of audition, you might say. And so I went to senior centers, many of them right here in in L.A. I went to uh, uh, senior day picnics. I went to quilting clubs. I went to to Baptist churches, Catholic mass. I went to a Juneteenth parade. I actually had a booth at the Juneteenth parade over near Lamert Park one year in order to find people. So went all over. Uh, when it came to Chicago, I went to a place where there were retirees from the CTA, that's the Chicago Tr- Transit Authority, and, the, and, a, and a woman came up and she said, I didn't actually make the migration, but my mother did. And so she volunteered her mother, Ida Mae Gladney, uh, for uh, consideration for the book. And uh, what kind of person was Ida Mae Gladney when she was a young girl in Mississippi? Well, she was a tomboy, and she was very good at, she could kill snakes, she could chop wood, she uh, would like to go out and plow for her brothers, she actually would take tap sticks to kill uh, rabbits with. She, In fact, her, her nickname was Tom for a good while. And then uh, she, she, but in her world, there were perils. And at one point, she actually... Actually, was um, she was running an errand for her father, uh, taking some uh, a tool to the blacksmith's um, shop, and the blacksmith's sons, who didn't have anything better to do, um, they actually grabbed her and they dangled her over the mouth of a well when she was about five or six year old, years old. She never forgot that, and she told me she said, "I wondered what what would have happened if they had dropped me. No one would ever have known." In those days, there were not the protections for African Americans in the Jim Crow South, and so she said nothing would have ever come of it. But she was the type of person who didn't 
dwell on such things, you know, an inspiration for all of us. She really lived in the moment and and made the most of what she whatever was before her. And um, she ended up being terrible at picking cotton. She ended up being a sharecropper's wife with that was the task. And she she was terrible at it. She hated it. And again, she could kill snakes. She could wring a chicken's neck for dinner, but she was not good at picking cotton. And her family ultimately left Mississippi for Chicago when um, a cousin had been wrongly accused of having of, of stealing something he had not uh, stolen. He was beaten within an inch of his life. And the next day, the thing that they thought he had stolen turned up, but nothing was done of it uh, about it. And her husband came to her and said, after he saw what happened to his cousin, this is the last crop we're making. And they left. This is the last crop we're making. We're speaking with Isabel Wilkerson. Her magnificent new book is titled The Warmth of Other Suns. So a key part of this story um, is not just that black people had the motivation and in many cases the energy to leave the South. The white South had a system to prevent them from leaving. There there was a legal system, and then there was, what do we call it, an informal uh, system that backed that up. Uh, explain how this system worked. Well, first, the system known as Jim Crow controlled every aspect of their life, so that it was illegal, believe it or not, it was against the law for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. It's astounding someone would just sit down and think about writing something down like that. But that was a law in Birmingham, for example. It, there was actually, in, there were in some courtrooms a white Bible and a black Bible to swear to tell the truth on. Actually, different Bibles. And there, it came to light for me when I d was doing the research, and there was actually a trial in which they had to stop the trial right in, in the middle of it because they couldn't find the black Bible Amazing. for the black person who had just uh, taken the stand. Amazing. But to get to your question about how, uh, the efforts to keep them from leaving, uh, when there were large numbers of black people on the plat train platforms, the authorities would uh, wholesale just arrest people on the charge of, of peonage or the fa or charge that they might have owed the planter to whom they under whom they had worked. And that was because their labor was leaving, their cheap labor was leaving, and the entire economy of the South was based upon having cheap labor to be able to work the fields and to tend to the um, the essentially the Southern aristocracy. And so they did not want their cheap labor going. They would board the train sometimes when there were large numbers of black people already on the train and, and arrest people. And then when those things didn't work, they would actually wave the train on through if mm. they saw large numbers of black people waiting to board. And they also, there were uh, state uh, efforts to prevent blacks in Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, uh, from finding out about opportunities for jobs in the North. Uh, and that was that was you're speaking about the Chicago Defender primarily, which was essentially the, the the newspaper in the North that would alert people to the opportunities that were there, jobs available, um, what places that they might find a place to live. It gave them hope and, and connections that they might otherwise have. But that Chicago Defender was considered contraband, and a person could not, an African-American could not be seen receiving one. They might have been intercepted at the post office. I mean, who was there to receive it? But but the people who were running uh, the Jim Crow system. And so often they, the Chicago Defender made it to the South and to these people through the Pullman porters who would uh, who would pack them uh, in the back with the luggage, and then they would hurl them from certain agreed-upon mm. sites. And the people who were the essentially the couriers of them in the South would then go and, and, and get them and then distribute them. 
Yes, so Isabel Wilkerson, in your book, The Warmth of Other Suns, you, you talk not only about leaving the South, but of, of life in the North. What, what was Ida May Gladney's life like in Chicago? Was it the promised land? It was very difficult, particularly in the beginning. She arrived during the Great Depression, uh, which was hard for everyone, but especially hard for her. And and black women had a really hard time because uh, men in general, immigrant or otherwise, were much needed because you had foundries, you had steel mills, you had slaughterhouses, which where a strong back was required and valued, especially if you didn't have much education. And she did not. She had you know grown up in the countryside of of Mississippi. But the women had a hard time and the only thing they could hope to do was become domestics, but they're actually during the depression was very little work for them. And so they ended up she and there ended up being these markets. They were actually called them slave markets in which black women would gather on a corner and wait for um, a well-to-do well-to-do white housewives to come and pick oh. among them. And they actually started bidding wars among themselves, so they were bidding down the price oh. that they might get. That's the story, one of the stories in this book, <laughs> Ida Mae Gladney's story of the Mississippi to Chicago uh, migration. There's also the Louisiana to Los Angeles migration, and that you tell through the story of a man named Robert Forster who left Louisiana in 1953, an amazing person for starters he didn't take the train he drove in a buick he drove in a buick across the desert and it ended up being a little more treacherous than he had anticipated because he thought that uh, he would be able to find a place to rest after he got out of texas and it turned out that in 1953 uh, Jim Crow, as we know, the the the, you know, the uh, system of segregation actually extended beyond the borders of what he thought was the South, and it was a, it was a shocking and surprising thing to him and a dispiriting thing. And yet he had gone too far from his home in order to turn back. He was leaving Monroe, Louisiana, because he had served in the army as a surgeon. But when he got out of the army, it turned out he could not practice in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. So he set out for California, which had always been a dream. And he wanted to uh, to come out here, but it turned out that he could he had to drive from multiple states without stopping because he could not find a place to stop to rest. And and how did it happen that Robert Forster got to be a surgeon in Louisiana uh, in the late forties? He didn't become a surgeon in Louisiana. <laughs> he became a surgeon by going to the one black uh, medical school, which happened to be Meharry Medical School, that happened to be in Tennessee. So he did not become a surgeon there. He had to go outside of his own state for that to the slightly more progressive state of Tennessee, where there was a, a historically black college known as Meharry that had been that had gone had a history going back to uh, reconstruction and that's where he went and then he went into the army so then he went into the army and then uh, he was able to perform there are some fascinating stories about the problems that he had in the army but but once he got out he decided he wanted to bring he had a family by then but they had been separated for much of the time as he was pursuing his medical degree and he wanted to bring the whole family together and he set out on a course for uh, California on his own which is very typical of the great migration and of also immigrant men he often set out first and then scout out the new world get situated and then call for the family Mm -hmm. But he had such a hard time. I attempted, actually, in the course of doing the research to recreate his journey. I rented a Buick. Wow. 
had my parents <laughs> with me who were by then retired and all and they were migrant they had migrated mm-hmm. from the south too so they were always ready for an adventure and we found ourselves I tried I tried to follow it to the letter based upon his description of what he had done and when we got to the stretch where he needed to drive without being able to stop um, I began to, ex- I wanted to experience what he did, how the fingers begin to swell and they begin to ache and the eyes begin to get, mm. eyelids get heavy. And th- by this time it was darkness in the desert and the mm. mountains came and you had this hair, these hairpin turns. And at a certain point, my parents said, we must stop the car. You're not going to let us drive. They wanted so much to drive. I said, no, I must do the driving myself. He did it himself and I've got to do it. And my parents said, no, for all of our sakes, stop. So we only made it to Yuma, Arizona, where, of course, because life, uh, because the world has changed so much, look how far we've come as a country. We had no trouble, my parents and I, finding a place to rest. But he did not have it so easy in 1953. He did not have it so easy. Robert Forster eventually went back to Louisiana. Tell us that story. Yeah, he had to go back. Generally, some people never went back, we should say. Some people never went back until unless uh, generally their mother died. Essentially, that was what brought some people back. He had to go back also for funerals. And one time when he went back, um, he decided to stop in at a uh, restaurant that he had not been able to go to when he was growing up in Monroe, Louisiana. This was now by now the 70s and things had changed and things had opened up. And he was he was surprised and underwhelmed by the very, by the mundane nature of the place the, of this restaurant that he'd gone to. I mean, by this time he'd lived in L.A. and he'd gone to some of the finest restaurants here. So mm-hmm. he was accustomed to just wonderful, wonderful, high-end, glamorous places. And he went back to this restaurant and he was thinking to himself, essentially, is this what they were keeping us from? Because it was so very mundane, which shows you how, how, how um, small the people were thinking when they tried to keep the races separate and how sad and tragic it was for everyone because some of these people might have been the best of friends, but they would never get to know it because they were so separated that way. So he found it quite under, underwhelming. And then in an odd kind of way, he he was healed because is this all that there was? Is this all that there was? Yeah. Um, I understand you brought your own mother back to Georgia uh, long after she had left. And what, what was that like for, for her and for you? Well, actually, at first, she, I mean, kicking and screaming. I mean, absolutely mm. did not. <laughs> she kicking and screaming and not wanting to, to go back. I needed to be in the South at a certain point for the writing because I needed to really truly understand what they left. They left a beautiful land. I mean, you must acknowledge the beauty of the land, the lushness of the land. They left kin and, you know, uh, relatives in the land of their birth. And so they gave up a lot and sacrificed a lot, as would as would any immigrant. You, you, you come to realize what the forebears have given up in order for all of us, so many of us, to have a life here in America, a great country. And and, and so I needed to do that. But she went back kicking and screaming and did not want to be there. I also took her to the um, the to um, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, where she growing up could only go through the side door. And she had the same reaction as Dr. Foster did. Hmm. It was, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, got all of the, the bells and whistles of one of those, uh, you know, 1920s theaters. But after all those years and after what she'd experienced being in Washington, D.C. with the great monuments and all in the White House and the Capitol and, the, and all of that, she, too, said, is this what they were trying to keep us from? Amazing. Uh, I just wanted to close by asking you to read the, um, the passage 
from which your title comes from uh, Richard Wright. Yes, Richard Wright was one of the great novelists of the 20th century. He was also someone who migrated from the South, from Mississippi to Chicago. And when he wrote this, in some ways, it's a message to anyone who ever has to leave one place that they, the place they've only known for a new place, a new life that they're setting out for. And it reads, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. Isabel Wilkerson, her wonderful new book is The Warmth of Other Suns. Isabel Wilkerson, thanks for your book and thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, a Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Well, your new book tells the story of how you got into political work. You are an immigrant from India who came to the United States in 1982 to go to college. You were not yet 17 years old. You know, my dad had very little money in his bank account. I talk about this. He had $5,000 left in his bank account. He used all of it to send me here. And when your parent makes a sacrifice like that and sends your, their kid across the ocean, not knowing if they're ever going to come back, as it turns out, we've never lived on the same continent mm. since I was 16. They're oh. still in India. You know, he had a very special idea of what success meant. To him, success meant you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer because that was what would guarantee your future financial stability. Well, you started out by doing what your father wanted when you graduated. You applied for jobs in investment banking. Uh, I love the story you tell about how in one of your job interviews, you were asked what you would do in a meeting if a male colleague said, honey, go get me some coffee. What was your answer? <laughs> I said I would do just what I'm going to do now, and I got up and left. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 what happened then? Well, they, they called me back and they said, oh, you're exactly the kind of woman we want. You know, come back and, and, and uh, we'll give you a job offer. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, and I, I did not end up working for that firm. I worked for another investment banking firm in leverage buyouts. Um, in the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts were really big. And I will tell you that it taught me a couple of things. First of all, it taught me what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, and that was investment <laughs> okay. banking. So I left, and I tell people that's very important to find out what you don't want to do as much as it is to find out what you do want to do. But the other thing it taught me was very strong skills in 
financial uh, analysis, financial management. I'm very comfortable with numbers. I'm very comfortable with, um, you know, all of that. And so that has really served me well, both as when I was starting a nonprofit organization that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, but also now serving on the budget committee, you know, coming up, talking to some of the world's best economists, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stieglitz, as I'm creating the Paycheck Recovery Act. Um, I think that that experience actually really helped to build my confidence in those areas that have been quite important. Um, and certainly as I'm calling out Wall Street now, um, I understand what that means. And even questioning Sundar Pichai <laughs> from Google the other day, I talked about how the ad exchange that Google has is sort of like um, an unregulated stock market where people can, can engage in insider trading. You know, so I, I draw on these experiences all the time and what I'm doing now, even though it's not what I ended up doing with my life. So when you left investment banking, you went to the other end of society, uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago, in what is often called a bad neighborhood. But you said you liked working in a, what's called a bad neighborhood. How come? Well, I was tutoring Cabrini Green. It was was not no longer exists, but was one of um, the largest uh, projects in South Chicago. And I really wanted, I was in graduate business school, but I really wanted to do things that mattered and tutoring kids was something that appealed to me. And so I would make my trek down to South Chicago and, and being in the midst of that project, that housing project was formative because I saw how people lived and I saw the things that we needed to do as government to really provide safer environments, better housing for people. And then, of course, I got very deeply into Saul Alinsky and uh, community organizing in the south end of Chicago, working with Mary Houghton and the South Shore Bank. And I, I want to ask you about so South Shore Bank because you say one meeting there changed your life. That's pretty dramatic. What kind of single meeting could change a person's life? Well, I met Mary Houghton, who was the executive director of South Shore Bank, one of the founders. And um, she introduced me to the idea that I could use my business skills for good, that I could focus on economic development as a way to make vocation and avocation the same thing. And so that was the beginning of really opening my eyes to this whole other world. I could use my business skills, but do economic development. I ended up going to Thailand and working in refugee camps and doing rural economic development. And then, of course, eventually moving into the public sector. You have one great sentence when you uh, describe your decision to leave the private sector. You say, let's be real. It takes a lot to get rid of the pressure and expectations of your family. I think every immigrant kid in college right now knows exactly what you're talking about. How did you do it? Well, I just, um, I had to trust myself. And then I had to say to my parents, look, you've given me all of the foundations and now you have to trust me. You have to, you have to allow me to trust myself and you have to trust me. And it was not an easy thing. And my dad, for years, even when I had started the most successful immigrant rights organization in the state, I, you know, he's there, he's meeting the governor, who's our keynote speaker. And he says, oh, yes, she likes to do this volunteer work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just takes a lot, you know, to, to kind of change how your parents see things. But I will say that I think that they're proud of me. They scratch their, they scratch their heads many times during my career 
But I just kept saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what makes my heart happy. This is what I believe I can do to make a difference. And in the end, I had to just follow my path. So you went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp. Then you decided to go back to India. You came back to the United States. You got married. You had a baby. You got divorced. You moved into your own place as a divorced mother. Your baby had health problems. And what was the date you moved? September 10th, 2001. Mm. Day before September 11th. And you say that 9-11 was the first time in America that you felt scared, and it wasn't another terrorist attack that frightened you. That's right. It was the um, hatred that I saw, um, the xenophobia that I saw, and the incursions of civil liberties ultimately by the government in the wake of the passage of the Patriot Act and so many other things. You know, the original Muslim ban was passed right after 9-11. And I saw that and I saw the sort of the, the way in which patriotism, um, you know, combines with fear to suppress dissent. So all of a sudden, all these people um, with all these hate crimes and the Bush administration actually themselves in, you know, moving forward policies that curtailed civil liberties for people just because of where you were born or what religion you practiced. And yet, if you tried to speak up against that, somehow you were on the side of terrorists. It was us versus them and you were with them. And it reminded me of the Japanese internment and other times in our country where um, patriotism and fear together have been used, as I said, to suppress dissent. And I felt like I needed to speak out against that. And um, and so I did. What I thought originally was going to be just fighting individual hate crimes by some individuals against another very quickly turned into fighting the U.S. government, taking on the Bush administration, successfully winning Um, uh, a lawsuit around the deportation of thousands of Somalis and then going on to constantly challenge the deportations, secret detentions, and all of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11. You have a great story about uh, meeting your Seattle congressman who was the predecessor in the seat you now hold, Jim McDermott. Your idea was to declare the entire state of Washington a hate-free zone. He liked the idea and said, Uh, where do we start? And you said, how about tomorrow? And what was his response? (laughs) He leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, who are you again? <laughs> because these are, this was just six days after 9-11, and I was saying we needed to get the governor and the mayor and everybody to come out, declare the state a hate-free st- zone. You end your book with the lessons you've learned, and the first one is own yourself and stay open. You say, don't try to be someone, try to do something. Explain what you mean. Well, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in politics, um, who think about who they want to be, not what they want to do. And the only reason I'm, I like being a member of Congress is because it gives me a platform to do things that I think are going to make a difference for the world. And so I just want people to be authentic to themselves, to not change themselves because they think that that's going to bring them more power and prestige, but also to think about 
your legacy of action, not just having a title before your name. That's great. But the only reason I like the title is because it allows me to go to the airport in the wake of the Muslim ban and threaten to storm the airport if I don't get to talk to the head of customs and, and border protection and get the people off the plane that are about to be deported on the tarmac, you know, or because I can use my position to get into a federal prison and talk to hundreds of moms and dads who have been separated from their children. So that's the action, and it has to be about the action. Um, and you've got to be real for who you are and what you believe in. And the last lesson in your book is leave space for new leadership to emerge. Don't hang on to power. But we want you to stay in power. We need you to stay in power. <laughs> well, I will stay in power for as long as I feel like there's something that I can achieve. And you know, when I stepped down from One America, people thought I was crazy. It was 12 years. I was there as the executive director. I built it from nothing to this incredible organization that had done so much. And they said, why are you leaving? It's the height of your success. And I said, well, first of all, I'd rather leave when I'm at the height of success than when I'm on the downturn of it. Okay. Um, and secondly, you know, change is good. So it doesn't mean we're going to leave immediately, but we do have to continue to be aware that there's time for other people to come forward. And there's lots of people to come forward and do that work. Pramila Jayapal, her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.